0: the basics of money management isn't rocket science. We know we need to earn more than we spend and we need to save and we need to invest, but it's our psychology that makes it difficult. We set our own ceilings with self-limiting beliefs. We sometimes live in a mode of operation that's fear-based and sometimes we self-sabotage. So, I really became interested in the psychology of money, how our thoughts and our emotions and our behaviors around money really shape our relationship with money and our financial reality. And as I personally started to apply some of the tools that I learned in my clinical practice to my relationship with finances, it transformed my life.
1: Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon, the investing show with a buzz. Sit back, relax, let's take the edge off, grab a nice glass of bourbon, and enjoy. Cheers from your host, James Vermillion. But first, let me kindly remind you, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon, the investing show with a buzz. I'm James Vermillion, founder of Vermillion Private Wealth, and I'm joined today by Joyce Martyr. Joyce has been a licensed clinical professional counselor and an expert in self-esteem, mindfulness, career development, and the psychology of money. As I read her book, The Financial Mindset Fix, The Mental Fitness Program for an Abundant Life, I truly felt like I was going through therapy sessions. During our conversation, we talk about the relationship between self-worth and net worth, the power of self-fulfilling prophecies, overcoming crippling fear, and the difference between the scarcity mindset and an abundance mindset. So whether you're satisfied with where you are today financially, or you're working to overcome some challenges, Joyce provides insightful ways to live a more abundant life. Thanks for listening. Hello, Joyce. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. Thanks so much for joining me.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Now, as you know, with the Southern hospitality, the Kentucky hospitality, I like to start the show with a bourbon tasting, but I, I will say I'm a little hesitant to drink with a psychotherapist. So
0: right. I, I'm if a little I nervous. i you, James. I, <laughs> we're going to do a substance abuse assessment. Just...
1: <laughs> we, maybe we can do that after, after <laughs> right. the show.
0: right. I don't know if I'll be qualified if I drink along with you. That could
1: be exactly. a
0: license, you know. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, we're gonna we're gonna go with a really kind of a really just solid bourbon that I, I enjoy drinking. It's it's not something I drink, you know, very often, but it's just a good go-to that that I always enjoy. And it's Victor's small batch. And it's what I call a reborn bourbon. It was I think an old brand way back in the day that originated in Pennsylvania. And then as many bourbon brands did throughout history, it kind of died. And uh then during this bourbon boom, somebody with some excitement and some money decided to to bring it back. It's one of the really solid and successful born-again brands. So it's it's just a quality, high-quality uh bourbon. So I'm excited to to taste that with you. So you've got it poured, it looks like. So Let's go ahead, give it a, a smell, a taste, and just let me know what you think.
0: Absolutely. It does smell really good. It smells a little sweeter to me than what I'm used to. Well, I like that. It doesn't have that r- super bitter feeling that some bourbon has.
1: I would say the nose, it's very straightforward. There's nothing surprising, nothing really unusual. It's just kind of a quality oak, some sweet corn. And really quite subtle. And then the palette's about the same. It's it's got a nice texture, but it's not overpowering. It's not particularly surprising. It's just really good.
0: I agree completely. Not that it's I'm like, a huge bourbon connoisseur. I I will do like a knob creek or a maker's mark, and that's about all, all I know.
1: <laughs> hey, I was just about to say one of the things that it's kind of annoying about you know about bourbon these days is everyone is everything has to be so different, so unique. So sometimes just you just want something good. You know, it doesn't need to be anything uh, that's going to blow your mind, but just something high quality and something you can go to and know it's going to be good every time you drink it.
0: Yeah, this this is solid for sure. It's Really nice.
1: Well, good. I'm happy that you like it. And I'm excited to kind of delve right in and, and talk about your work as a psychotherapist, how that's kind of mixed in with some of the financial concepts and things that I talk about a lot. And um, I really want to start with kind of a really broad, bigger topic. I think it was one of the central themes, maybe the central theme of your book, if I had to pick one. Um, And that is this connection, this relationship between self-worth and net worth. And I've heard people talk about that a lot, but it's usually money people, right? It's usually financial advisors who are trying to be therapists, not a therapist who's realizing these connections. So I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about that and what you've discovered throughout your career.
0: Absolutely. So I've been practicing as a licensed psychotherapist for 25 years, and it was relatively early on in my practice. I would say within the first five to seven years that I started to notice a really powerful trend. That as my clients started to make progress in therapy, and it didn't matter if they were coming to me for depression, anxiety, relationship issues, they started to earn more money. And I was like, why in the heck is this happening? We're not even talking about finances. And I realized it's because in therapy, we're always working on the client's underlying relationships with themselves. And so as they started to grow in their self-esteem and self-worth, they started to value themselves more and put themselves out in the world differently with more confidence, more assertiveness, thinking bigger, expanding their comfort zone, having more courage and negotiating. And so I started to see that powerful connection. And you're right, financial advisors like Susie Orman said that self-worth leads to net worth. But she said, net worth does not lead to self-worth, which I completely agree. It's We all know a, a lot of people who are very wealthy, but don't have that inner joy or inner peace. And so I became really interested in the psycho- the psychology of money and really applied that to my own entrepreneurial journey.
1: Yeah, I love that. I wrote a blog post, I guess it was sometime last year, that was actually kind of similar in the sense that I was talking about um, something I've noticed and that's when people really start to focus on their family and creating an environment, a balanced work life, you know, relationship and all of these things that they tend to do better. And I suspect really it's exactly what you're talking about is they're valuing themselves and their families more and that's leading them to be happier, more confident um, and, and all of these things.
0: Absolutely. I know you recently had William Green on your show, and he's the author, of course, of Richer, Happier, Wiser. And he interviewed billionaires from around the world. And I had the honor of speaking with him and presenting with him at Bryant Park at their reading room in New York. And I thought it was so cool that in his interviews with successful investors, he found these traits exactly like you're saying, uh, prioritizing family. Uh, he called it equanimity, like mental calmness or emotional regulation. He found and even compassion. And I've, I found that fascinating because many of those are the same mindsets that I put in my book coming from the mental health lens. So he was coming from the financial health, but we identified these same mindsets that lead to holistic success.
1: Yeah and I think that's brilliant because here William was talking to some of the most successful what we would all think are maybe the most well put together perfectly balanced in mind body and spirit all these people and then you you have you know had a career where you've probably dealt with people like that but also dealt with people who were really in some very deep struggles in their life and what I realized from reading William's book and then reading your book was everyone's the same? You know, these are these are problems. They might manifest themselves differently, and or maybe some people will go through certain issues and not others. But everybody struggles. Everybody faces issues, um, and no one's immune to it. And when you look at somebody who's successful and think they they're perfect, they've got everything together. That's probably not the case. Uh, in fact, it's not the case.
0: That's very wise James. I completely agree with you. And if there's anything I've learned as a therapist, it's it's exactly that. It's that we all have issues and I think we all have issues with self-esteem or whether it's, you know, some mental health issues like stress, anxiety, depression, substance abuse issues. We deal with these things as part of the human condition. And even people who are very wealthy or very beautiful or seemingly have it all together on the outside, we all have our struggles, including financial. I've worked, just like you said, with people from you know, the range of, of being impoverished and homeless and deeply struggling financially to people who have had hundreds of millions of dollars. And really on both ends of the spectrum, people have issues with money and will experience. I, I was really surprised to learn that people with tremendous wealth can experience paralyzing financial anxiety because our anxiety isn't always rational, uh, but it can cause very serious mental and physical health issues.
1: Yeah. One of the things when I started this podcast, I didn't know which direction it was going to go, right? I knew I wanted to talk about money and investing and and wealth and innovation because I love technology. And I wanted to drink bourbon because because here I am in Kentucky. So I knew those things, but I didn't really know what I wanted to talk about or who I wanted to talk to. But I realized pretty quickly that I'm really interested in the behavioral side of things. I'm really interested in the psychology and kind of the self improvement side of things, because frankly, most people know what money mistakes they're making. They know they're not saving enough or they know they're not investing enough or, or whatever the case is, but they don't know why maybe. And so that's why I think this is such an important conversation. And, and, and talking to William was such an important conversation because it can help people with that part and then they can start to prosper.
0: Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more because the basics of money management isn't rocket science. We know we need to earn more than we spend and we need to save and we need to invest, but it's our psychology that makes it difficult. We set our own ceilings with self limiting beliefs. We sometimes live in a mode of operation that's fear based and sometimes we self sabotage. So, I really became interested in the psychology of money, how our thoughts and our emotions and our behaviors around money really shape our relationship with money and our financial reality. And as I personally started to apply some of the tools that I learned in my clinical practice to my relationship with finances, it transformed my life.
1: I've been thinking a lot about the mind and the and the actual like construct of the brain, just because I'm kind of a geek like that. And I love for it. as for as unbelievably impressive, complex, and, and just fascinating as the brain is how much information it can process. We do some really damn stupid things with money. And it's it that fascinates me like we can do all of these amazing things but we can't follow like a simple path that has been proven to work. (laughs) So that's kind of the areas I'm trying to explore. Like, why is this so easy yet so complicated for people? And I think your book answered a lot of that for me because it's emotional stuff. It's not, it's not intelligence. It's not anything. It's emotional. It's self-worth. It's all of these things that are, that are really holding people back. Not whether or not they know uh, they need to save more than they, than they spend.
0: I'm so happy that you like my book. That makes me, just so pleased. And I hope that it's helpful to, to many people. And yeah, I, it's just like our relationship with food and exercise. We know what we need to do, but most of us struggle with that in some way. And so we need a support system, you know, great advisors like you, we need accountability, we need to transcend send any shame or stigma that we might be feeling about any financial challenges. And we need to become financially conscious because a lot of us can be in denial about whether it's overspending or you know just not wanting to face certain aspects of our financial life, and that can really hurt us.
1: Well, you mentioned health just then, and sleep and nutrition, and and you're right. Most of us know, like at least on a basic level, how much sleep we need to get, what types of foods we should be eating. Have you also noticed you noticed this link between self-worth and net worth. Have you also noticed just a kind of a web of all of those things kind of going up at once as far as nutrition and sleeping well and health and net worth? I mean, is that an all kind of encompassing rising tide lifts all ships type of thing?
0: Absolutely. And you probably noticed in my book that I'm big on these innovative wheel exercises. I did them
1: all. I did.
0: Really? Yes. That's Amazing. Yes. Oh my gosh. I love that. And it's about balance. And so just like you said, um, the, all of those characteristics of, of sleeping well, you know, hydration, nutrition, exercise, those are spokes of my self love wheel in the self love chapter. And then, you know, I have a financial health wheel. I have a financial mindset fix wheel. I have different wheels for, for different aspects of each chapter, support network wheel, where you assess and, and measure your support network and look at areas of need. And you're, it's all interrelated. And you started this show by talking about that self-worth is really the core of it all. And you think about the people in your life who you know work out regularly, and they make that a practice. And, and that is an as- aspect of self-care. It's prioritizing your own health and wellness. And in my practice, I see that people who do that, who have a morning routine, it sets them up for success in so many other areas of their life. So it's all interrelated. Absolutely.
1: Your book got me thinking about my habits and things like that. And I really, I really do mean it. It felt like I was in therapy sometimes. And I, I I don't have a lot of experience with therapy, but there were times where I was sitting there thinking like, holy shit, I don't want to think about that. Like, <laughs> no, come <it's-> on, Joyce.
0: <laughs> Sorry about that. But we have blind spots, all of us, even smart, intelligent, successful people like you, you we all have, have blind spots. And that's why therapy or counseling or or working a program like the one in my book can help remove those blind spots and get your wheels turning and, and opening your eyes on maybe what you're not recognizing that's, that's harming your, or getting in the way of your, your greater prosperity.
1: No, it's hugely important. I think I agree to identify areas where, you know, if, if, if you're, if I'm reading something in your book and I'm saying, I don't want to think about that, there's, I probably need to, because there's probably something there. That I'm that, avoiding.
0: Yes, exactly. You should be a therapist. That's exactly what happens. <laughs> people change the subject. Oh, I don't no know. No one like wants I'm me avoiding. as a therapist.
1: <laughs> <Right>? I promise. <laughs> uh, um, I did want to touch on just going back to your practice. And I know obviously you're not a financial advisor, you're a psychotherapist, but just over the years, you've probably dealt with a lot of people in stressful money situations that kind of fed into, you know, other issues that they were going through in their life. What do you think would be the number one kind of thing you saw as far as money goes?
0: Well, I think that many people don't realize that there's such a thing as financial trauma. And the research said that even before the pandemic, 25% of adults and 33% of millennials experienced financial trauma at levels that met the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. So the pandemic has obviously been a mental health and financial health global trauma Mm -hmm. that has just added fuel to the fire. So financial traumas would include a business folding a bankruptcy, sure. unemployment, uh, a foreclosure. And and many people deal with financial anxiety. I mean, most Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, don't have savings or financial resilience during challenging times like the pandemic, haven't saved properly for retirement and are dealing with debt. So that kind of financial stress can be soul crushing. I believe in this spirituality of money that it, it truly impacts us mind, body and spirit. It, it impacts our identity, our, our sense of self esteem and place in the world. It impacts our lifestyle, what we can do, our empowerment, you know, sometimes people feel stuck in relationships, because they feel they don't have the means to leave. And so I really hope my book is about helping people practice self-compassion and understand that we all unconsciously repeat what's familiar until we choose something better. We often learn money scripts and ways of relating to money from our families and our cultural or religious beliefs. My father grew up in the Great Depression and had a scarcity mindset and dealt with unemployment during my adolescence and he had tremendous financial anxiety and I I inherited that and it caused me a lot of overwhelm until I chose to to work on that. And of course we're all works in progress, but absolutely but lots you can do to help.
1: Yeah, I think that's interesting. Do you think it would qualify as financial trauma for people? Because I've got a lot of younger clients, you know, millennials, a little bit older millennials you know, we kind of grew up in the great recession. Like that was what a lot of our first exposure to money and finance and investing was, it's like, we have this embedded distrust for, for some of these institutions and for the system, if you will. Um, Would would that qualify? Even if nothing necessarily happened, like nothing happened to me. So that was so bad. Fortunately, my family was able, you know, to not have any major issues during that time. Um, but I, you know, just talking to a lot of my clients, there's just this fear that I think a lot of it might be related to what they saw growing up and, and maybe if they didn't even directly experience it, does that, I mean, does that make sense or am I just going off the rails? It
0: makes total sense. It's what was going on in the culture at the time that you were growing up. And so those were your sort of environmental influences that affected some of your beliefs about money. And jobs were scarce. I mean, I remember for for many millennials, you know, graduating from college, it certainly wasn't a guarantee that you would move into a position in your area of study and, and things have been challenging. So I, absolutely, that shapes your beliefs about money. I, I share in my book that I went through financial struggle with building my business and my own therapist. I, I, yes, even therapists have therapists. Uh, she said, well, Joyce, what do you think of when I say the word money? And I said, stress. And she said, well, no wonder you make it go away.
1: (laughs) Right. Exactly.
0: So I had to reprogram that belief system and, and start to understand that money is a resource and one that I was deserving of, welcoming into my life. And, and that's when my financial life began to change dramatically.
1: I'm totally going to be that guy. Who's like, I have a friend who, so I could get <laughs> some, some good therapy from you today with that.
0: <laughs> oh yes. absolutely.
1: <laughs> um, you touched on your grandfather. I think you said with the um, going through the depression and having the scarcity mindset. I've also, I think dealt with that mindset a little bit. Um, obviously didn't grow up during the depression, but I think for me it was more of being in this culture or feeling like I was in a culture where it's kind of like elbows out, you know, there's it's there's a winner and a loser. I'm gonna, I'm gonna win. Like I don't wanna be, you know, beat this kind of competitive, I don't know, kind of macho kind of uh environment that is especially prevalent in the, you know, in finance and in in investing. That's something I've I think I've made a lot of progress on over the last couple of years. And a lot of that was due to starting my own firm and realizing how helpful so many people actually are when you kind of get out there and, and, and work with people and, and seek it out, I guess. So I think that's a really interesting um, thing. Can you talk a little bit about scarcity mindset and abundance mindset and kind of what the difference is for someone who may not know?
0: Yeah. So a scarcity mindset is one that's based on fear and lack. And it's the idea that there's not enough resources for us all. So we need to be competitive. So it's kind of like the toilet paper incident during the pandemic. And and the abundance mindset is the mindset that there's more than enough resources for all, all of us. There's more than enough success to be had and that we can work collaboratively. And when we do that, we actually welcome greater prosperity and greater success and so you're exactly right that a lot of times we shift into a mode of fear and competition and that is a, tr- a more traditionally masculine mode of operation in in relationships and a collaborative mindset is is a little bit different and so it, in my book i share how helping other therapists even though i started this group practice that's now National, And I was able to successfully sell it a few years ago, that I still help other therapists grow their practices. And I had so many people say to me, like, that's so foolish. Why are you helping train your competitors? But it actually led to way more referrals to job applicants, to, you know, business opportunities for speaking, for writing, for business development. And so it's, it's a little bit of a shift in the way that you look at things. And it, being more willing to share information to ask for help. You know, I I shared in my book that I'm one of the business, biggest business mistakes I made was, sticking my head in the sand and not seeking proper business or financial consultation soon enough and that was because of shame and fear and a little bit of ego and pride so it's it's great sure. that you're you're, share, you're collaborating with others now and you've empowered yourself to have your own business working in the way that that you feel is aligned with your heart and and better serves your clients
1: i think that's an easy trap to fall into really in any Um, any field because you feel protective over what you're building. And I think we were kind of taught that like, if you know, if you don't get to the top, like someone's going to come up and and snatch you up and like take you out. And, and certainly there's always going to be an element of competition to, to business. There's no doubt about that, but I think that's, I think that seems to be a dying, um, kind of mentality, or at least, um, one that's starting to, to lose a little traction in favor of the more collaborative environment. But, you know, that was an interesting thing when talking to William Green, going back to him and going back to just other successful people I've studied, the ones that are often in the news all the time and stuff like that probably don't reflect reality as far as the number of people who operate that way. So I think it's probably people are a little misguided, perhaps because of media and because of kind of glorifying maybe a certain style over another. But I I think there are a lot of successful people out there who don't have that scarcity mindset and who openly collaborate and work with others and share why they were successful and things like that.
0: Yeah, I love professional associations for that reason. I think that's such a great way to share resources with others and learn and grow and get support.
1: Absolutely. I want to shift to another concept that I think was um, very appropriately described um, in your book is something I think is really powerful. I've always kind of felt that way and that is self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. And I think when you talk about it or mention it, some people kind of think it's kind of hokey or, you know, whatever, but obviously you've, you've worked with a lot of people who are going through various issues and help them to overcome those. Can you talk a little bit about just your thoughts on self-fulfilling prophecy and whether or not it's as powerful as I think it is?
0: wow, I have a deep respect for self-fulfilling prophecy. When I I have now treated thousands of clients from all different walks of life. And in cognitive behavioral therapy, they say that our thoughts precede our emotions and behaviors. Mm -hmm. Even Gandhi said, man is but the product of his thoughts. And so what we think shapes our reality, because it shapes our behaviors and how we put ourselves out in the world. So a lot of times I'll have a client say to me that they, they're they going to go for a promotion or a new job. And I'll ask them, do you think that you're going to get it? And a lot of times people will say, oh, you know, probably not. There are a lot of people who are better qualified than me. It's really highly competitive. And then I'll say, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry, then you probably won't. <laughs> and they're usually kind of taken aback because I love being a warm, fuzzy, supportive, empowering therapist. But if you don't believe that you're going to achieve something, you absolutely won't. And so we have to be very careful where we direct our thoughts. And I, I believe in sports psychology, the importance of visioning your success, visualizing it and Beginning to expand your thinking to know that that's possible. And I recognized early on in my career that I was setting my own ceilings. When I first started my practice, I'm, I had coffee with my friend Steve, and this was in the mid 90s. And he said, Hey Joyce, how much money do you want to make? And I said, Gosh, I'd really like to make $60,000 a year. And he said, Ooh, gross. <laughs> I, want to make, he's like, I want to make over a hundred thousand dollars a year. And I said, well, do you think that's possible? And he said, of course that's possible. And that year I made 60 and Steve made over a hundred. He went on to win Shark Tank, was on Oprah's Favorite Things. He's built and sold several businesses. And so I thought, oh my gosh, I am setting my own ceilings. And so um, I I decided to adopt a an abundance mindset like Steve. And so, you know, that is when I started shifting my thinking to, you know, I could make millions with my business. I could sell my business for millions of dollars. And of course, there were many people that wanted to prove me wrong along the way, but I politely disagreed and stayed the course and was able to do that.
1: I think that's awesome. And I've been guilty of that sometimes when working with clients, right? Because here we are trying to figure out what their goals are and, and where they want to be. And originally when I started doing this, someone, you know, I would, we would be talking about, you know, their goals, 15, 20, 40 years from now. And, you know, they would say, I want to probably somewhere in here is what I think I'll need to retire. And I didn't really push it. You know, I kind of said like, okay, you know, that's reasonable. Now, you know, I, I, I'm a little bit more, um, I don't know, involved, I guess, and saying, Hey, like what, what made you pick like, why let's kind of work backwards. And how did you get to that number? And why not hire? Like, you know, you're, you're young, you've still got a lot of time left. You're, you know, you're an intelligent person. You know, what made you choose that? Not that that number was bad or not that that's not a a good life for them. um, If they make that number, but just, you know, getting people to, to, to stop doing exactly that and setting like a low ceiling um, because you're right. If that's what you're aiming for and you hit it, you know, a lot of people are going to stop and, and feel good about what they did when they could have achieved something maybe better.
0: In therapy, we call that the miracle question. And I love saying, if you had a magic wand, what would you like your life to work look like? And so when people say something that's a kind of a muted version of what I think they could have, I'll say bigger, now make it bigger and, you know, more and more. And and I think many of us have been taught that that's greedy or self. Sure to want more. And in my opinion, when we have more, we can help more. You know, mm-hmm. as my business succeeded and grew, I was able to hire more people, provide more internships, provide sliding fee and pro bono counseling as needed and give back to charities. You know, people can be philanthropists when they have more, they can do meaningful work in the world and change in the world. So I think it, it, it isn't about greed. And when we have more, it doesn't mean someone else has less. We can have more and help other people have more as well.
1: Absolutely. And it depends on what you're doing with more. I mean, if it's more for the sake of more, then yeah, I mean, you could probably argue that's greed. But if it's more because you've got, you know, things you want to achieve, things you want to give back to, you mentioned philanthropy. I mean, that's something I'm learning more about. As an advisor, because it's starting to come up with my clients, people are doing better. They want to give back, and it, you know it's my job to be able to help guide them in not only how they can can give back, but what are some ways to, to where they can also benefit aside from the the good feeling of doing charitable work. So um, I think all of that's so important. And 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 if you've got a purpose and and a, and a meaning and a mission for what you're trying to achieve, then I I don't think you could really make much of a valid argument that it's pure greed that's kind of taking over.
0: No, and I, I feel like William Green said the same thing that we we were both talking about compassion and being of service and helping others through charity and philanthropy and that sense of meaning and purpose. The research shows that that is the biggest variable in psychological resilience. That when you feel that you're you have you have purpose and you are helping others, that that makes you feel health, happier, stronger, better about yourself. It, it's a whole framework for how you operate in the world.
1: Absolutely. All right. I'm a former, I'm going to shift gears. I'm an Air Force guy. And now I'm in finance, two very acronym heavy areas, I guess, industries, whatever. What does WTF mean to you?
0: <laughs> oh, right <laughs> That's so funny, yeah, therapy is also a acronym filled profession, so, yeah, I had a funny thing happen in the book. I share a story about I had a lot of rejection with my book proposal, and at a holiday party, I bumped into my friend Randy, and he said, "Hey, Joyce, how's your book coming along?" And I said, "Oh, n- not so great it you know i I kind of put it on the back shelf, and he was like, "Oh man." you need to talk to my monk. And I was like, your monk? And he said, yeah, my Buddhist monk, I think he could help you. And I was like, okay, I can use all the help I can get. I'm going to go ahead and call this guy. I had no idea. I thought I was picturing kind of a Tibetan looking monk. And he ended up being a guy that had retired from Accenture and and lives in Highland (laughs) Park, which is a very affluent suburb of of Chicago. And he was wearing like a black outfit and, and one of the smartest guys I've ever met in my life. That was obvious in a few seconds. And he said, tell me why you're here. And I told him about how I'd been writing a book for almost 10 years, but it hadn't come to fruition. And he stopped me and he said, I have your answer. And I was like, oh, my God, my heart started beating. And he wrote on a piece of paper something and he handed it to me and it said WTF. And I was like, (laughs) I was kind of mad. And I was like, are you (laughs) serious? And he said, yes, weaken the fiction. He said, weaken the fiction that's in your head. All these excuses, all this BS, all these reasons why your book hasn't come to fruition and get out of your own way and let it happen. And it was really helpful for me. And I think we all do that. We, in narrative therapy, they talk about, we're not just the protagonist, we're also the author. So we need to empower ourselves. And so, so often we write these negative narratives. I mean, my clients do it about, you know, their exes are having these amazing lives and, hot and heavy relationships in their mind and that's causing them depression or anxiety. And it's fiction that they're, they're, they're writing and we all do that and it, it negatively impacts our lives.
1: Yeah. That's what I love so much about your book. You not only, I I think people with, especially with self-help, they get a little tired I think of like being preached at, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's like, you can go read a million self-help books, which for one, like you actually have to do something. I hope people like realize that like you can't just read the book and through osmosis, good things are going to happen. Like you have to actually try to implement, you know, some of the, some of the things. Um, but I love how you shared personal stories, especially being a therapist of some of the challenges you faced, whether, you know, like you mentioned earlier with, um, your, you know, your business and you had some issues there and, and were able to kind of redirect and, and, um, and, and then just some of the actual feelings that you've gone through at various points of your life, because I think people, they just feel like they're, you know, they're the target of like, I'm going to help you be better like me, um, as opposed to like, I'm like you, but here's what I did to, to kind of improve my situation.
0: Thank you so much for that kind feedback, because I, I feel like the talking down to someone is shaming and stigmatizing and pejorative and like. Therapists are human <laughs> and we're, we all have issues and we're all works in progress. And usually, therapists, we specialize in our own issues. <laughs> right. So, so, I think that the reason I share some of my own stuff is because it's normalizing and it's validating. And so often we compare our insides to other people's outsides and we imagine we're the only ones with these issues. And one of the blessings of being a therapist is just seeing that everyone has their challenges and it's normal and understandable and and help is available. And you're right. The self-help is a, it's a program. So my book is a program with exercises and I call it a mental fitness program. And Mm -hmm. you can't just listen to your trainer, talk about working out and suddenly have a six pack. you have to actually do the work. So you got to do the exercises if you want to reap the benefits.
1: And that's something I struggle with. Um, as far as writing, I I love writing. I'm actually, I'm starting on a book. I've I've started on the outline. I'm working on that. It's going to be a long project, uh, I'm sure. But even when I write blog posts and things like this, I don't want to sound like this, like overly virtuous, like talking down to people. I mean, I've made financial mistakes, plenty of them. Um, I've talked about some of them in in various uh, pieces and things like that, but I just think that comes off as like very disingenuous if you're not kind of w- being willing to put your some of your own mistakes out there and kind of own up to them. And and like you said, it humanizes you because now people say like, oh, OK, he's not just some guy who knows about money and now he's going to preach at me. He's someone who's had his own experiences and and some of them not necessarily pleasant. So I can relate to that and that'll help me get better and things like that.
0: Absolutely, that kind of authenticity and vulnerability really helps people connect. And I love that you're you're blogging and and going to write a book and and share your wisdom. And we learn from our mistakes. We learn from our challenges. And I was once on a panel with with private practitioners who had been successful in, in our careers. And the common theme as we told our story was that we each had multiple failures and we persevered, we learned from them. And so, you know, people see the tip of the iceberg, but they don't see the challenges and the learning and the hardship and sometimes suffering that comes in that process of, of learning.
1: I just finished a a blog post actually, um, I guess last week that was called a mistake today is worth more than a mistake tomorrow. And you know, I feel like so many people, they're so worried about making mistakes. I've been guilty of this a million times to where it's like, you kind of just don't do anything because you don't want to mess up. And the problem with when you do that, you're not going to learn anything by just, you know, sitting idle. Um, And then you're probably eventually going to do it. Then you're going to make the mistake and you're going to be three, four years, five years behind, you know, where you could have been had you not been crippled by, by that fear and of making a mistake and just done it and got the mistake out of the way and and, and learned from it and figured out maybe what went into the mistake and why it happened and, and go from there.
0: Absolutely. And, and so I think, like you said, a lot of people prevent that failure. So in my practice, I've had so many clients who have a business idea or a screenplay they've written or a book that they want to write, or you know, whatever it might be, and they art that they haven't shown anyone. And I say in the book, we're, we're beggars sitting on a golden bench. We all have unique gifts and talents. And when we align them with a need in the world, we can welcome greater financial prosperity. But if we don't have the courage to put them out there, it'll never come to fruition. So, so much of it is about expanding that comfort zone, um, I loved one of the experiences I mentioned in the book where I was giving a presentation and I had the attendees stand up and introduce themselves to one another as if they had achieved their greatest career goals. And when I gave them that instruction, everyone looked super uncomfortable and they were like, are you you serious? They were like, that's kind of embarrassing. And they were all looking at each other. And I said, no, I want you to be grandiose, like the biggest accomplishment you can imagine. And they really got into it. People were like, yes, I'm a Nobel prize winner and I'm a CEO of a global company. And they got really loud and really excited and I couldn't get them to stop talking to each other. But, but the reservation, the, the fear of admitting people were saying like, do I want too much? Is that embarrassing? Is that wrong? Are people like, who the heck does he think he is? Or she thinks she is. And, and that, Prevents us from from trying and from growing.
1: I agree, and I want to talk about fear some more, but in a, maybe a different light. I would say that's probably the number one um, hesitation my clients have with investing is they're scared. They don't want to lose their money. You know, people work hard for money. They've got all of these ideas about money and how they value money, and people get really worried. And it's hard not to, particularly when any time you turn on. I mean, today's been a very ugly day in the markets. And it's, it's easy for people to, to get worried and they, they turn on the news and this is the beginning of a down cycle and you've got all this stuff still going on with COVID and there's some issues going on um, in China today that have a lot of people worried. And I mean, literally any day, whether it's a you know good market day or bad, you can find things that would cause you to worry about your money if you're investing it. And that causes a lot of people to either not invest or wait longer to invest. And, you know, we know the power of compounding. So that waiting can, can be, you know, uh, very costly. Yes. Um, so, you know, to me, fear is, is, is a really just strong, strong emotion and a really strong driver of behaviors. What's something people can do if, if they, if they get crippled by fear easily, or if they worry about the future, what maybe would you tell a a client to kind of help them restructure that?
0: Well, I think that there's a few strategies that I go into great detail in the book that are really helpful with that. And one is in the presence chapter, because many of us either spend time ruminating or second guessing the past or worrying about the future. Like you said, worrying about your investments and peace can be found in the present moment so simply by using mindfulness practices which the research shows you know it has so many mental health and physical health benefits and financial health benefits that if if you and and william green said the same thing of of investors who meditate and yeah. have that regular practice it it roots you in a groundedness in the here and now so you can make a place from mental calm and equanimity without being emotionally reactive and fear-based. And and in the detachment chapter, I talk about developing healthy risk tolerance and, and developing the ability to compartmentalize some of your fears and also the ability to zoom out, you know, that if we ride every wave, um, and I'm doing this with my book sales now, by the way. I can obsess and look on Andy. Right. And they, right. And they go up and down and up and down. And I'm like, oh no, it's plumbing. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. but you have to zoom out and have great sure. perspective that, you know, over time, and we know that with the market, you you do it will recover and you have to wait it out. And and there are ups and downs, but you you don't need to ride that roller coaster. You can separate yourself. From that process and separate yourself from your your money with some healthy detachment and i think you know as an entrepreneur i see that many people don't have that risk tolerance and there's so much fear about loss that it prevents them from starting their own business like you have
1: it there's a chart or it's not a specific chart but one thing i do with people who are particularly worried about you know big downturns and things like that i'll take a chart whether it's you know an index like the S&P or, or specific stock, if they've got a large position. And I'll zoom in to like a particularly bad, you know, period for that company, maybe a six month um, period where, you know, maybe they had a couple bad quarters or whatever, there was some sort of sell off or turnover in management or whatever the case might be. And I'll say like, yeah, this is like pretty scary, right? Like I can see why you'd be worried about it. And then, you know, you zoom out to the the 5 or 10 or 20 year chart. And of course, it's Mostly up with with the dips here and there, so I think perspective is so important, especially for people when looking at at money or or really anything long term. When you try to look at it in a short term lens, it can be a lot scarier than it actually is.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and and also to separate our worth from our finances. You know, if our, our we make a bad investment or something, that doesn't mean that we're bad or wrong. You know what I mean? It's temporary. And like you said, you've made mistakes and you've recovered and you've learned and you know, that's how life is. It's just, we, we don't always win them all. And, and that's okay.
1: No, I love it. Well, let's transition to the kind of closing questions. Um, that I, that I ask every guest, um, and we'll keep sipping our, our bourbon as we do that. Um, I'm actually really enjoying this Michter's more than I remembered. So that's good.
0: It's really good. I I like, Uh, I put a little ice in mine and it's melting and I, it's great.
1: No, nothing, nothing wrong with that. You know, people, uh, around here, especially people can get a little uppity about, (laughs) about how to drink bourbon or whatever, but I always remind people there was, there's a famous master distiller, um, who's passed away, I don't know, uh, probably seven or eight years ago. Uh, his name was Elmer T. Lee. So there's a bourbon that's that's named after him as well. Um, he used to always drink really good bourbons with Sprite or 7-Up. And people, you know, once they hear that he did that, it's like, oh, well, then it must be okay. Because, you know, he was he's one of the most knowledgeable bourbon makers to ever walk the earth. So, so he always said, drink it how you like it. And, uh, oh, that's and, great actually, I agree. (laughs) So, um, Joyce, tell me what, when you think about wealth today, after everything you went through with, you know, your, your experiences and then working with so many other people and helping them overcome issues, what does wealth mean to you?
0: It's such an important question. And to me, being wealthy is having holistic success, which includes mental health, physical health, supported relationships, work life balance and also financial prosperity and having that you know financial peace having having you know the ability to live the life that you want and to take care of yourself and your loved ones and the world around you in a way that is meaningful to you you know to think about your legacy and what you want to leave behind like that that's that is wealth and and i think you know, we were talking earlier about belief systems and and many people have the thought that money is the root of all evil or people with a lot of money are bad. And, and those beliefs can be preventing people from achieving more. So reframing that as you can, you can do a lot of good with wealth.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think that goes both ways. There are people who truly do believe that they've grown up, grown up hearing that. Um, and it gets kind of embedded. And then there are also people who maybe grew up in a wealthy environment as far as money. And they're taught that like, you know, poor people are stupid or they're lazy. And yeah. it's like so many of these, just like notions about who is what are just so far off base. Um, it's important to step back and just remember, you know, we're all people with, with challenges and some people had a definitely a head start when it comes to money over other people. Um, and there are just so many, so much nuance there. It's it's very, you know, kind of ridiculous to try to simplify it in such a manner.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I like that you said we're all human and we all have struggles. And I think we're all dealt a different hand of hardships and blessings. And we have choices about how we're going to play that hand. And, and I do believe in sort of the psycho spirituality behind money and wealth. And that when we do our inner work, we welcome abundance in a way that is more meaningful. It's not just about the money. It's about growth and progression of society and contribution and, you know, anything that's important to your, you in your heart and soul.
1: I love that uh, term you used uh, do, doing the inner work. Can you like just pontificate on that a little bit? And like, what does that mean to you? Like, is, what is it? what does that entail? I guess.
0: Well, I think as human beings, we all unconsciously recreate what's familiar until we become conscious and we choose something better. So we're all shaped and molded by our childhood experiences, our early family experiences. We often choose careers and relationships that recreate certain dynamics. We all have defense mechanisms like denial, rationalization, intellectualization, and those may be impairing our success personally and professionally without us realizing it. And so I think we all have a responsibility to ourselves and to our loved ones to do that inner work, to have some self-reflection, to have some practices where you take an honest inventory of yourself, of your strengths and your gifts and your talents and all that's wonderful about you, and also the issues that we all have, and to address those to the best of your ability with with support, and and so you can do this through whether it's counseling or therapy, which I think should be a routine and preventative form of healthcare, like going to the dentist, or practices like meditation or yoga or other spiritual practices or programs like twelve step programs or whatever it may be that that cause you to reflect and grow.
1: I'll say I I started meditating probably. I don't know, maybe six months ago, something like that, something like that. And I I grew up kind of thinking like, that's all like weird, kind of hippie nonsense, like, you know, whatever. But the older I got and the more I talked to people who did it, you know, most of them were, were quite successful, seemed really balanced, had a pretty good, you know, value structure that it seemed like they were adhering to. So like the more I saw that I'm like okay like uh, it's obviously not that ridiculous like I need to give it a try but I do think there's some sort of hesitation to to certain things like that Um, for some reason I don't know where that came from no one ever told me that it's just it was kind of what I thought about it
0: well just like what you said some people think that's kind of hippy dippy or new agey or it's so simple like oh just breathe and you're gonna feel better (laughs) you know but but there's Tons of science behind it. And, and mindfulness has been around for thousands of years. And the research shows that it improves your, your um, physiology, you know, it reduces high blood pressure, it improves digestion, it reduces chronic pain, it improves your immune system, it, it boosts, um, it helps you alleviate depression and anxiety and mental health issues, recover from trauma. Um, it, 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 like I said, it even improves financial awareness. And mm-hmm. so it, it, we live in a world where many of us suffer from the disease of being busy and our minds are overloaded. And so taking a moment to connect with the breath and to connect with our deeper self and have a moment of reflection is like rebooting your operating system. And then you're going to function better at home and at work. And it's simple. I love apps like Headspace and Calm, and they mm-hmm. have 30-day trials and, and guided meditations. I, I love Peloton, so I do their, their meditations on the app, and they have meditations for sleep before I do public speaking, I, I'll do a five minute courage meditation and it helps. It's, it's, something yeah. that's, you know, it's easy to do. takes a few minutes and you feel better.
1: Yeah. I use an app called balance that I think has a free, actually, I think a one year, um, subscription. I love it because I was literally starting from, from scratch, having never meditated before in investments. I always think about risk and reward, right? Like that's just one of the basic investing and, and finance principles that's kind of how I started looking at meditating. Like, what's the downside? Like, there's no downside. It's, it's yeah. not going to, it's not expensive. It's not going to hurt me. It's not, you know, whatever. And even at its core, even if, you know, you, you, you just take it at very face value, it gives you time away from a screen, away from other people and uh, to to collect your own thoughts and to, and to think for a few minutes. So even if that's as, as much as you think it is, that's still very valuable, I think.
0: And for many people active meditations might be something they're already doing like running or gardening, or, you know, even if you're going for a walk, anytime that you connect with your senses and you get in your body and you're not caught up in your mind chatter that that's meditation.
1: That's, that's excellent. Um, And then the last question is if you could go back and tell a young Maybe fresh out of college, Joyce, give yourself some advice, you know, business or investing or, or just life more broadly. What would you say to yourself? Now, who's the therapist now?
0: Wow, uh, yes. <laughs> you know, I just answered the same question for a magazine article was what would you tell your 18 year old self about finances? And I think a lot of it would be that I would tell myself that I'm so much more capable than I thought that I was and to think bigger sooner um you know it, it, instead of having in that scarcity mindset as a college student you identify with broke college students oh yeah and so working those minimum wage jobs when i could have probably done something much greater and you know so i think i think that i think um just a lot about empowerment and and knowing that i was deserving that you know I think my inner critic was fierce and and kept me from doing a lot, and I suffered a lot from social anxiety and different forms of anxiety that um, I wish I could have told myself to get in therapy sooner.
1: Right. Hey. Yeah. I I think I, I like this book probably convinced me to like go start some sort of therapy. Um, I so love. It. We all. You, need you at it. least you at least accomplished that, and I I just want to say I really did your book. Um, and it's different than any finance book I've ever read and I have read many of them. Let me tell you, going back to when I was a, a teenager, it's therapy in a book it really is. So it's a really really interesting take on not just thinking about what the mistakes are but why the mistakes occur or why you 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 know re- resort to the behaviors or the mindset that you do. So I think anyone who reads it, whether they're in you know dire need, of some sort of financial counseling or someone who is not, but just has a couple areas that they can improve in. Because like you said, we can all improve in, in some ways. We're all works in progress.
0: Oh my gosh. That makes me so happy, James. Thank you so much. What what a
1: wonderful compliment. And where can people find you, Joyce?
0: So my website is joycemartyr.com. J-O-Y-C-E-M-A-R-T-E-R.com. And I have, I'm on social media, I'm li- on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, all of them as Joyce Smarter.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, drinking with me, chatting with yeah. me. Um,
0: thank you so much, James. It's been lovely talking with you and I wish you all the best.
1: You too. Thanks, Joyce. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion with Joyce Martyr and learned something to help you live a more abundant life. If you're enjoying the show, please make sure you subscribe or follow so you're notified when new episodes are published. We'll be back soon with more good bourbon and more great guests. Until next time, cheers.